Okay, uh, today's learning will be Lozech Nishmas, a grandmother, Rivka Vas, and Marcha Yosef. We're going to start from Daf Samach Zayin on the base. Second line from the bottom. Rav Chanina Havahan, Aniyaniyah, Dabaroglash, Durebe, Arba, Zuzi, Bechol, Mali, Shabsa. Rav Chanina would send, there was a certain poor person in his neighborhood, Samach Zayin on the base. Rav Chanina would send four Zuz every Friday. Uh, just to pay this uh, poor person. One week, he passed it with his wife. He wasn't able to deliver it himself, so he asked his wife to deliver the tzedakah. She comes back and she says to Rav Hanina, he doesn't need tzedakah anymore. The guy's a faker. What happened? My causes. So what did she see that she realized that he doesn't need tzedakah? She overheard him saying, what are we going to eat on Chavez? Are we going to use the silver platters or the gold platters? Such a person is not poor. It's one thing to, you know, to have a delicate, you know, like you want to have, a, you like meat. Like we had yesterday, some people, poor people like meat. But to say, to have, a, to say, you know, are we eating on the gold or the silver trays? That guy's a faker. So the Gemara says, And this Rav Lazar said, we should thank the fake collectors. Why? Because if not for them, we'd be sinning all day, meaning there's a mitzvah de raisa to give every poor person that sticks their hand out. And the truth is, it's a big sugya and it's not for now, but the truth is, you're supposed to give every poor person. But not everyone does. So what's our only limitzchus? Our limitzchus is that there are fakers. So because they're fakers, Hashem understands, you get burned enough times, you sort of think that there are fakers out there. So we have to thank the fakers, because if every poor person was honest, then there would be no limitzchus on why you don't give tzedakah anytime. The fact that sometimes you don't give tzedakah, at least Hashem says, listen, he's been burnt so many times, there's so many fakers, so okay, he probably thought that guy was a faker. It's not a full limitzchus, but it's something. Because the Pasuk says, Anyone who pretends he doesn't see a poor person, doesn't give him tzedakah, it's like doing Avay Dezara. It says over here, It says regarding tzedakah, the word bliyal. And it says, You see, the word bliyal means Avay Dezara. So if not for the fakers, there would be like no heter out there. Okay, it's a whole sugi of, you know, maybe we'll talk about this next time, but, uh, you know, is there any hatter to not give tzedakah? The truth is, you're supposed to look into it, but, okay. Tanra Abonim. Hamasames einoi v'hametzabes bitnoi v'hametzabes If someone pretends that they're poor, so they put on a limp, they cover their eye, you know, they're one of these fakers. If, let's say, they put on a limp because they want people to think they're poor and they're, you know, like a cripple, Hashem promises they will, before they die, they will become that crypt. The Gemara also says, If someone takes tzedakah when they don't really need it, they pretend to be a poor person. Hashem promises they will become poor before they die. You do it, that's the punishment. Tanad Hasa, okay. Nusugya. Tanad Hasa. The halacha is that you could only collect tzedakah from the communal chest if you were deemed poor. What's the definition of poor? So the definition of poor is someone. Shoot. Someone just called me on WhatsApp, which stopped the recording. Okay. It's being recorded on on, uh, on Zoom. But, uh, okay, that's annoying. Um, kids are, so the Gemara says, it was that kid Collins called me. 
Okay, I can't call him back. The Gemara says, the Mishnah says, the halacha is that you can only collect tzedakah if your deed is poor. The definition of poor is someone who has less than 200 zuz cash. If you have less than 200 zuz cash, you could collect tzedakah. So the question is, what if you don't have 200 zuz cash, but you have things in your house that if you would sell, it would be valued at 200 zuz. So you're poor enough that you only have 180 zuz cash. Okay. I'm sorry, 180 zuz or dinos. Um... See, the Zuz are dinos. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, Zuz, yeah, Zuz. So let's say you have less than 200 Zuz cash. So you're technically a poor person. But if you were to sell your table, your chairs, your plates, spoons, you know, sell everything, it would be valued at 200 Zuz. Are you obligated to sell it? Or do you say, no, you're a poor person. You could collect from Tzedakah. You're not obligated to sell things. Meaning, if you don't have 200 Zuz cash, you're deemed a poor person. You could collect from Tzedakah. That's the halach. You don't have to sell your items to get to 200 zuz. You're deemed a poor person. Is this true? Wait a minute. You're telling me that you're not obligated to sell your items and you're deemed a poor person. But doesn't the prices say that if you have gold vessels, you should sell them and buy silver? And if you have silver, you should buy, you sell them and buy uh, copper? So one price indicates that you're obligated to sell your items to to avoid being, uh, to get to 200 Zuz, to avoid being a poor person. And one Bryce says, you don't have to. So which one is it? Are you obligated to sell or not? So the answer is, The answer is, it depends what items. You're obligated to sell your, your bed and your chairs because bed and chairs you could replace. Forks and knives and and, and 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 cutlery, you're not obligated to sell. So Rashi says, because people are pretty finicky about their cutlery, so you're not obligated to sell your cutlery. So if you don't have 200 zuz, are you obligated to sell it to get to 200 zuz to avoid being a poor person? The answer is it depends. If it's talking about chairs and cu- uh, chairs and tables, um, yes, you're obligated to sell, but not cutlery. So the Gemara doesn't understand that. What's the distinction? The Gemara says like this. I don't understand. I understand. You don't have to sell your, your, your cutlery. Why? Because you're finicky about your cutlery. So even tables and chairs, people are, are particular a little bit, maybe not to the extent as cutlery, but people are still particular about tables and chairs. So why are you obligated to sell it? So the Gemara says, you're right. Okay, we have a contradiction. Once you have 200 zoos, you can't collect tzedakah anymore. The question is, if you don't have 200 zoos, but you could sell your items to get to 200 zoos, are you deemed a poor person or not? One price indicates that you're obligated to sell, one price indicates you're not obligated to sell. So what's the answer? First answer is, you're only obligated to sell luxuries, like a silver plow. Meaning, if you don't have 200 zoos, are you obligated to sell to get to 200 zuz, to avoid being a poor person, the answer is it depends. You don't have to sell your chairs, your tables, your clothing, your cutlery. But if you have like a, you know, a gold ornament that you could sell and make a lot of money, yes, something that's outlandishly expensive that like you happen to have in your family, like you have a you have a brand new Tesla, yeah, you have to sell that. That's ridiculous. But something that's considered normal, you don't have to sell. That's the first answer. Rapapa has a different answer, and that is, he says, whether you have to sell or not just depends on the circumstance. Meaning, are you trying to collect tzedakah? If you're trying to collect tzedakah, you don't have to sell. Meaning, you could collect tzedakah if you don't have 200 zoos. If you don't have 200 zoos cash, liquid, you do not have to sell to get to 200 zoos. You can collect tzedakah. 
when does it, what is the price they're referring to when it says you have to sell? That's talking about the following scenario. What if you took tzedakah when you were not allowed to take tzedakah? Like, what if you took tzedakah when you were not poor? And now the tzedakah organization wants to collect and you don't have the cash to pay it back. That's when you have to sell. So whether you have to sell, it just depends on the circumstance. You don't have to sell in order to get to 200 zuz cash so you don't have to collect tzedakah. That you don't have to. But if you took tzedakah unlawfully, and now the question is, do you have to sell in order to, um, now the question is to pay back what you stole, that you have to sell to pay back what you stole. You understand? So that, that it's just it's a shiloh of what the circumstances. Okay. Mishnah. The Mishnah is fo- talking about the following scenario, and that is, in general, uh, the father's dowry was generally the general father, Not I'm not talking about stingy or generous, but just the average was 10%. 10% of the father's uh of the father's money went to the dowry. So the question our mission is gonna that was that was the standard practice. The question is if the father's no longer alive, value. If you have a hundred thousand dollars to your name, you used to give ten thousand. That was the standard process. They would give 10% of their money towards the dowry. That was just the standard operating procedure in the times of the Mishnahis. Yeah. I'm assuming you're I'm I'm assuming you're saying liquid. I, I don't know actually, to be honest. It's just a 10%. I would assume of the liquid, but no, it could no, actually, because the dowry also had merchandise. It was probably liquid and merchandise, probably not land, but of the of the movable cash, they would give 10% of it. The question is if the father's not alive and they're going into the estate, do you just say standard take from the estate 10% towards the dowry? Or do you say we should try to figure out if the father was a stingy guy or not. Meaning, if you know the father was a very generous guy, maybe you can take 20%. Or do you just 10%? I mean, that's the question. Do you just go 10% or do you try to get into the father's like mindset? That's a machlekas tanoim. The Mishnah says, If you have an orphan who's married off by her brother or her mother, so now she's going into the estate to take the dowry because the father's not alive. And let's say the brothers and the mother wrote a very small dowry. They wrote 50 zuz, which was less than 10%. When she gets older and she's no longer like below bat mitzvah, when she's old enough, she can actually go into the estate and take up to 10%. Meaning, let's say 10% is $1,000. And they wrote because she was 11 years old, she's a kid. So they're in control. So they wrote. Instead of $1,000, which is 10% of the estate, they gave her $500. She takes the $500, and then two years later when she's bat mitzvah, she could take them to court and take the other $500. Meaning, this Tanakama feels 10% is what's owed to her from the estate. If they didn't give it to her, she can take it. Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. He says, Rabbi Yehuda feels you get into the mindset of the father. So, im Review this says like this, if the father's not alive anymore, so if there were two daughters, let's say, right, and the father married off the first daughter when he was alive, so the second daughter just gets what the first daughter had, meaning you assume that the father would treat both daughters equally. So you have a pretty good barometer of whether the father would be generous or not. So if the father has two daughters, as Rachel and Leah, Rachel already got married when the father was alive, and the father gave her 8% of the estate. Okay, so then Leah gets 8%. If the father gave Rachel 15%, you give Leah 15%, meaning according to Rebuda, you get into the mindset. It's not a standard 10%. You get into the mindset of the father. And over here, the easiest way to get into the mindset of the father is, well, you look at the first kid. 
And Mustama, he would give the second kid the same. But says the Chacham, and they disagree. They say 10%. Why? The Chacham say, Sometimes fathers can get stingy all of a sudden, or they can get generous. Meaning, the fact that the father gave, you're trying to get into his mindset, but that, that's impossible. I'll tell you why. There were two daughters. When he was alive, he married off the daughter Rachel, and he gave her 15% of the estate. Now he died. So now Leah wants to get married. So Leah says, well, it's only fair that we should probably guess that the father would have given me 15% if he was alive. But you know what the answer is? Maybe if he'd be alive, he'd be stingy. And maybe he'd be cheap right now. And maybe the economy is not doing so well and he's nervous and he wants to retire soon. And maybe he would give you 5%. Or maybe he would be even more generous and he would give you 30% because you can't ascertain 10. So you have Rabbi Yehuda who tries to get into the mindset of the father and you have the Chacham who just says 10%. Okay. So the Gemara says like this, Amr Shmuel, Shmuel said, Shmuel said, when it comes to the dowry, we try to get into the mindset of the father. Meaning if the father's not alive, we don't just give a standard 10%. We try to ascertain what the father would give. In other words, Shmuel is saying the halacha follows Rav Yehuda, because that's basically what Rav Yehuda said. We get into the mindset and not like the Chachamim. Now, the Gemara just speaks this out. The Gemara says, Mesa, I have a kasha. It's strange because, like, basically, Shmuel is saying the halacha follows Rav Yehuda, and the Gemara is saying, I don't understand, but don't the Chachamim say not like this? And the Gemara is eventually going to say, Yeah, he's saying like Rav Yehuda. It's just like an interesting back and forth. The kasha is like this. According to Shmuel, you get into the mindset of the father when it comes to the dowry. Here's the kasha. The Brisa says, If the after the father passed away, the daughters take parnosa, they take dowry, and they take sustenance from the estate, ketzad. And how do you give them these amounts? We don't say, the father probably, we don't try to ascertain what the father would have given her. Rather, we give them a standard amount. So you see this Brisa clearly says, not like Shmuel, because Shmuel said when it comes to the dowry, we get into the mindset of the father. But this Brisa clearly states that when it comes to, that we don't go into the mindset of the father, we just have a standard amount. So which one, so how could Shmuel disagree with the Brisa? So the Gemara says, my is this Brisa, which states that we do not get into the mindset, but there's a standard amount. Is that not referring to the dowry and not like Shmuel? And the Gemara says, no. The answer is, Shmuel was talking about the dowry. This brisa, which says that we don't get into the mindset of father, there's a standard amount, is not referring to the dowry. What is it referring to? It's referring to the sustenance that she gets weekly. Meaning, after the father dies, she gets a couple things from the estate. She gets from the estate a dowry, and she gets from the estate a weekly stipend. So when the Brisa says that we don't get into the father's mindset, we just give a standard amount, that was not referring to the dowry. That was referring to the weekly stipend. But the dowry, we actually do get into the mindset of the father. So Shmuel could work with this Brisa. So the Gemara says, So you're telling me this Brisa, which says that there's a standard amount, is only talking about the stipend, but it says, which is two words, is not is not referring to one, the dowry, and one is referring to the stipend. So you see that it's referring to the dowry, and you see that we get into the mindset, we, we don't get we get into the, we don't get into the mindset of the father, we give a standard amount, Alex Shmuel. No, both is talking about a stipend. So why does it say two Lashonos? The answer is there's two elements of the stipend. One was money and one was clothing. So the price is really referring to the weekly stipend. And the weekly stipend, stipend, the weekly stipend, we do not, um, um, and the weekly stipend, we do not give, um, 
sorry, I got distracted. So when it comes to the weekly stipend, we do not uh, get into the father's mindset. We give into a, we, we have a standard amount. Just want to push back my next covers. Hold on. Okay. The Gemara continues. So you have the Shmuel is saying that we we um, we try to get into the father's mindset when it comes to the dowry. I our Misha says not like that, right? The Chacham our Misha say not like that. The Chacham the Misha say it's a standard ten percent. Tan Chacham ba'imrim pal mishalim ani ve'hasher hasher ba'ani el sham nechasim noisin la my ani my asher. When the Misha says according to the Chacham that there's a standard amount because some people get richer or poorer. So I explained what it meant was some people get stingy and some people get more generous. So you can't get into his mindset. So when the Chacham say some people get poor and rich, it doesn't mean actually poor and rich. It means generous and stingy. Because if it actually meant poor or rich, then, then there's no room for a machloikas. The Gemara says, You see the Chacham very clearly states that when it comes to the dowry, we, we, we try to get into the, we don't try to get into their mindset because it's impossible because some people become poor and some people come, um, some people become more stingy and some people become more generous. So how could Shmuel say that we, we, we get into the mindset? You see the Chacham disagree with that. The answer is, the answer is you're right. Shmuel is not following Racham, he's following Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says you get into their mindset, and the Chum disagrees. So Shmuel saying the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda. The Tanan Rabbi Yehuda Oimer, So you see the machloikis between the Chacham and Rabbi Yehuda of whether you get into their mindset. That itself is the same machloikas between Shmuel. Shmuel is passing like Rabbi Yehuda. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda. So if all Shmuel is trying to tell you that the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda, that when it comes to the dowry, you you take from the estate, you try to get into the mindset of the father, then just say halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda. Why does he have to say that we, we try to get into his mindset? Just say the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda. The answer is, Yehuda. If you would have said the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda alone, hava mina dafka hasiya. I would say that you, I'll explain in a minute. Time to review those. Lina Basar Umdina, Laishna, Sia, Laishna, Laishia, by Tony Sia, Dechaka, the Rabbana, Avagavisia, Begaladai, Laishna Basar Umdina. The answer is if Shmuel would have just said the Halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda, again, review the Shita is that we get into the Father's mindset. But if Shmuel just would have said the Halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda, you would say that we only get into his mindset, yeah? We only get into his mindset if he already married off a daughter. Meaning Rabbi Yehuda was talking about a scenario where there were two daughters. He married off one when he was alive. And then the second one is coming in to be married after the father died. So over there, it's very easy to get into his mindset because he already acted one way. He already married off a daughter. So it's easy to ascertain what his mindset would be. So... It's, it's, it's easy to get to his mindset. But in a case where he didn't marry off a daughter, this is his first daughter that they're marrying off, maybe we can't get into his mindset. Kamash says Shmuel, no, we always try to get into his mindset. So meaning if Shmuel would have just said the Allah of Azra of Yehuda, you wouldn't know that you could do this when he never married off a daughter before. I would say that you could only get into his mindset when he already married off a daughter, so I know what he would do. But if he didn't marry off a daughter, maybe not. Kamash Mullah, no. The halacha is that in all scenarios, you can get into his mindset. Okay? The Gemara continues like this. Amr le'i rava l'rav chizda. 
Rabbi said to Rav Chizid, they quote you as saying, that the halacha follows Rav Yehuda, that we try to get into the mindset of the father. <laughs> we try to get into the, <clears throat> we try to get into the mindset of the father when it comes to the dowry. There's no one else. So you can try to get into the mindset of the father when it comes to the dowry. So Rabbi said to Rav Chizid, that's what he quote you as saying, that we try to get into his mindset and it's not a 10%. So Rav Chizid said, I hope they quote me in other things like this, meaning, yeah, Baruch Hashem, that's what I said. So the Gemara says, Rabbi said to, did Rabbi actually say that the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda, that we try to get to his mindset. Vatanya, Rabbi Yoimer Basin, Isaidis Menachem, I tell us, Isaiah Menachem. But didn't Rabbi say that it's a standard 10% for the dowry from the estate? Bamar Rabbi Hilchasaka Rabbi. And Rabbi said, Halachavel's Rabbi. So Rabbi on one time said that it's a standard 10%, but another time he said we try to get to his mindset. So how do you reconcile those two contradictions? The answer is very simple. Did you know the father? To get into his mindset, it means you have to have known him. If you knew him super well and you knew that he was stingy or generous, then you could try to get into his mindset. Then we're, then it's not a standard 10%. When did Rava say that it's a standard 10% in a case where they didn't know the father super well? The guy come to the estate, the peasant didn't know him very well, no one knew him very well, then you have to go 10%. So the question of whether you go into his mindset, according to Rava, just depends. If you knew him super well, then you could try to find out whether he was generous or whether he was stingy. If you didn't know him super well, then you have to go 10%. Hachanami Mistaver, that makes sense, that it's not always 10%, according to Rebbe. It just depends on whether you knew him. Because Rebbe once gave 12, 12%, so not 10%, he gave it 12% of the Nechassim. So that's a contradiction in Rebbe, right? Right now we're saying that according to Rebbe, it's always 10%. The problem is, didn't Rebbe once take... Um, didn't Rebbe once take, uh, who was it? Uh, was it 12%? Um, a, a 12th of the estate. So that's not exactly, it's, uh, it's 8%. So he took uh, a little more than 8%. So so Rebbe said it's 10%, but then another time he said it's a 12th of the estate, which is not 10%. So how do you reconcile? The answer is, it depends whether you knew the father well. If you knew the father well, then you could try to ascertain whether he was stingy or generous. If you didn't know him well, then it's standard 10%. Okay. Gufa. If you have a daughter that's taking from the estate, and they tell us Easter Nikhasan, she takes 10%. So it's always 10%. So Rebbe said, meaning you take 10% from the estate for the daughter's uh, dowry. Now here's the problem. If if it's if it's ten percent literally, then if you have ten daughters, that means that there's no more money left for the sons, right? If you take ten percent, you have a hundred thousand dollars. Ten percent, so there's ten daughters. If ten percent of a hundred thousand dollars is ten thousand, and there's ten daughters, that means that all the money is spent on the dowry. That means that if you have ten daughters and one son, then the son gets no money, because if every daughter gets ten percent, so you got ten ten percent. That's all the money. If ten daughters and one son, so the daughters get ten percent for the dowry. If you have hundred thousand dollars, if every daughter is taking ten percent, that means that the entire estate is being spent on the dowry. That means the son gets nothing. So how could you say that? So Amalehan, he said like this: This is what actually happens. You have hundred thousand dollars. The first daughter takes ten percent. It's ten thousand, leaving ninety thousand dollars. 
Then you take the second daughter gets 10%, not of the 100,000. She takes 10% of what's available now, which is out of the 90,000, she takes 9,000. Now it's 81%, 81,000 left. The third daughter takes 10% of that, which is 8.1,000. Then this third, the fourth daughter takes 10% of that, which is 7.2, whatever it is. Basically, if you go through this math, all 10 daughters will take their estate. If you go by this you know, ranking system, they'll take 65% of the estate, roughly, and there'll be 35% left. So it's not 10%. Each one doesn't get 10% of the original estate. They get 10% of what's ever left. If you do the math, that'll leave 35% for the son. Then the Bryce says, all 10 daughters, after taking their amounts, they all put it in a pool together and split it evenly. So go to the next page. So Gemara says, why, why are you doing that? It was working so well. Each one takes 10%. So the first one takes 10,000. Second takes 9,000. Third takes 8.1. Fourth takes 7.2. Whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, you have to all 10, they have to pull it together. What do you have to do that for? So the Gemara says, What it means is, so let's say all 10 daughters are getting married at the same time. Then what you do is you take 65%. And you split it evenly amongst ten daughters, but you always have to leave some for the son. Meseiler of Masna, this backs up from Masna, Damer of Masna. In Kulan Kulan If all ten want to get married at the same time, now you tell us Iser Echad. You take one tenth. Iser Echad so it means you split it up all together at once. You take the 65%, split it amongst 10 of them, each one getting about 6.5, and that's how you split it up. So the sun will get 35%. Okay. One more sugya. And that is like this. We know that the daughter, after the father dies, she again, she takes a stipend and she takes a dowry from the estate. The question is, when does she... We've already talked about the stipend. The stipend ends either at the age that she gets married or when she turns 12 and a half, whichever comes first. The question is, what about the dowry? When does she forfeit the dowry? Let's say she's 20 years old. Does she still get a dowry? Do we say, no, the dowry also stops at 12 and a half. So the Gemara says, Tanra Abonu. Habonois, when it comes to the orphan daughters, bein nisu, bein whether they got married before turning 12 and a half or till 12 and a half and didn't get married, either one, either marriage or 12 and a half, ibdu they no longer get a stipend, but they still get a dowry. So if you have a girl that's 20 years old, she still gets a dowry. Divri Rebbe, that's Rebbe Shita. So turning 12 and a half does not, uh, you lose your stipend, you don't lose your dowry, according to Rebbe. They lost their dowries also at 12 and a half, or if they get married before that. So if they get if they turn 12 and a half, according to Rebbe, they still get a dowry. According to Rishim Rolazar, they do not get a dowry. So what do the girl do? Let's say a girl's turning 12 and a half and she's about to turn 12 and a half in two weeks. She knows she's going to lose her dowry. So what does she do? Oh, so the answer is you, you you put out an ad in the paper and say, hey, over the next two weeks, whoever wants to marry is going to get a lot of cash. You hire yourself out. Kate said, no, it's in hire a husband. <laughs> meaning meaning uh, you tell people that, hey, two weeks, you're going to get a lot of cash. And uh, you try to try to get the offers in quick. So Amr Nachman, Amr Lihuna, Nachman said the halacha follows Rabbi that turning twelve and a half, you did not forfeit your dowry. It's but Rabbi Nachman says turning twelve and a half, you did not forfeit your dowry. Here's the kasha. Ace Rav Rav Nachman. Rav asked a question to Rav Nachman. What did our Mishnah say? You have a girl who's under bat mitzvah who was married off by her mother, her father. 
And again, in the Mishnah, the, the parent, the, the mother or the brothers did not give her 10% of the estate, which is the standard amount. They gave her less than that. What did the Mishnah say? When she gets older, she gets to take from the estate that which is owed to her. That's what the Mishnah said. What do you see from the Mishnah? She still has the estate. Why? Because she's under bat mitzvah. The implication is, had she turned bat mitzvah and turned 12 and a half, she would have lost the estate. She would have lost the dowry. So we have a contradiction. Rabbi Nachman said that turning 12 and a half, you still keep your dowry, but the Mishnah implies not like that. So what's the answer? The answer is, you lose your dowry at 12 and a half unless you verbalize at 12 and a half, I don't want to lose my dowry. It's an interesting thing. I'm not sure. I guess the answer is unless you're Michael, meaning if you're Michael, so if you say nothing, we assume you're Michael, then you're Michael the dowry. But if you're not Michael the dowry, then so if you protest and say, no, I want my dowry, you'll get it. But if you if you say, no, nah, I'm fine, or you stay quiet, then you're Michael the dowry. So that answers the contradiction. This makes sense that even according to Rebbe, who says that you don't forfeit the dowry, that's only true if you say you want your dowry. But if you don't say you want your dowry, you do forfeit the dowry. How so? Because the truth is, it's a contradiction in Rebbe. Why? The Tanya, Rebbe said, again, we had before the Rebbe said that you don't forfeit the dowry turning 12 and a half. But Rebbe also said, if you have a daughter who's supported by the estate, she gets a tenth of the estate for her dowry. The implication is, when she's being supported, meaning under 12 and a half, that she gets the dowry, Shane is on his life. But if she's older, 12 and a half, she loses the dowry. That's a contradiction. I thought Rebbe said, you get the dowry at 12 and a half. The answer is, Shmami, no. The answer is, it depends whether she protested or not. If she said she wants a dowry, she protests, I want my dowry, she'll get it. If not, not. Shmami, no. So right now we're saying whether a girl gets her dowry at 12 and a half, it just depends on whether she protests. If she protests, she gets it. If not, not. Said over in your name, Bagra, if a girl turns 12 and a half, an orphan girl still 12 and a half, she doesn't have to protest, meaning she gets it. She keeps her dowry. So this is not like anybody, right? We're, we just said that even according to Rebbe, who says that you keep your dowry at 12 and a half, that's only if you protest. Now we're saying you don't even have to protest. You just, it, it's automatically still yours. Nisis, if she got married under 12 and a half, she also doesn't have to protest. The only time she has to protest to keep her dowry is Bagra Venisis, is if she turned 12 and a half and then got married. So at the Chasana, she has to say, she's over 12 and a half and she got married, she has to say, I want my dowry. So th- th- this is not like anybody. I thought, wait, wait, you tell me now that even turning 12 and a half, she doesn't have to protest? I thought, ter- I thought she only keeps her dowry if she protests. So what's going on over here? The answer is like Kasha. The answer is it depends. Normally, a girl. Normally, a girl does not get a stipend after the age of 12. But let's say the brothers are very generous to her and give her a stipend. If the brothers give her a stipend past the age of 12, she doesn't have to protest. If the brothers don't, then she does. So to answer the contradiction of whether she has to protest by 12 and a half, the answer is it depends. If the brothers cut her off the stipend, so then she had to protest to hold on to the dowry because they're already cutting her off. So she has to verbalize she wants a dowry. But if the brothers are willing to c- continue supporting her, even though they don't technically have to, they're like, oh, well, we'll keep supporting you as you get older, then she does not have to protest because the assumption is if they're willing to support her, they're probably willing to give her a dowry as well. Uh, last sugya, Amar Rav Huna Amar Parnosa, the dowry from the orphan's dowry, is not treated as the Tanaik Suba. Um, 
right? A stipend is called the Tanai Ksuba because it's recorded in the Ksuba. The, the dowry is not treated like the stipend. In what, in what way? How is the dowry? How is the dowry? How is the dowry different than the stipend? Who is it? Who is it? Hang on. How, how, how is the dowry treated differently than the stipend? So the Gemara says, "My suba." What does it mean that the dowry is treated differently than the stipend? So If it means that the dowry is different than the stipend, meaning the dowry is different than the stipend, in what way? So the Gemara says, if it means that the dowry can be collected, there's a lien on the property. So you could collect the dowry from um, from property that was sold. It's called Mishubadim, but you can't collect the stipend from uh, properties that were sold. Meaning, meaning the father, um, meaning let's say the father died. The daughter's supposed to get a stipend and she's supposed to get a dowry. The brother sold a lot of the land. She could undo the sale for the dowry, but she can't undo the sale for the stipend. Okay. The problem is, we already know this. It's common knowledge that that you could undo a sale. There's a lead on the property for this for the dowry, not for the stipend. So it's common knowledge. So what's the chiddush? The answer is Another answer. Maybe the difference is that the 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 dowry can be collected both from land and from movables. And the stipend can only be collected from land. The problem is that's not true. According to Rebbe, both the dowry and the stipend can be collected from movable assets also. So that can't be it. There's no difference. So what's so what's the explanation? So what's the difference between a dowry and a stipend? What does it mean when the Bryson says the dowry and the stipend are treated differently? Ella went with this. My parnasa in a kitanaik. So, what does it mean? The dowry is not like the stipend. Look at the time regarding the following brisa. If someone says on his deathbed, I don't want to my daughters to be uh, to get a stipend from the estate. We don't listen to him because it's in the ksuba. It's in the tanaik ksuba, and he can't overrule that. But but if on his deathbed he says, I don't want my daughters to get a dowry, then you could listen to them. Because it's not recorded in the Ksuba. So when it says the difference between a stipend and a dowry, it's talking about whether on his deathbed he could uh, renege on one of the responsibilities. All right, we'll stop here, pick it up tomorrow.